We are in a sermon series through the book of Genesis. Uh, Here, the first mention of marriage has prompted us to focus on the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage as we have. Uh, But really, the sermon will focus mostly on Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. So Genesis 2, 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let us go now to Matthew 19, verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He answered them, saying, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord help us as we consider His Word and labor to apply it to our lives today. Over the years, I've preached many sermons, and uh, there have been many times when, after having preached a sermon, I thought to myself, I could have preached that text or that topic much better than I did. I I readily admit to you that I've preached some poor sermons. Uh, But there was one sermon that I preached years ago that I wish I had never preached. Uh, That sermon was on the text of Matthew 19, and it was also on the subject of divorce and remarriage. I actually uh, dug the outline to that sermon up and found that it was dated August 22, 2010. So that was about a year prior to the founding of Emmaus. And in that sermon on Matthew 19 and on the topic of divorce and remarriage, I presented something like what is called the permanence view of marriage. In essence, the permanence a view of marriage is that the one flesh union established by God in the marriage covenant is permanent, death being the only thing that can dissolve it. And so, although divorce may be permitted under certain circumstances, remarriage never is. Uh, remarriage as long as the other spouse is still living. Uh, for the one flesh union remains intact until the death of one of the spouses. To divorce and remarry under any and all circumstances, therefore, is to commit adultery according to the permanence view. Uh, J. Carl Laney is a proponent of the permanence view. He is one that influenced me uh, uh, while preparing for that sermon long ago. Uh, in his book entitled No Divorce and No Remarriage, the title kind of says it all, doesn't it? Uh, he says, that marriage is God's act of joining a man and a woman in a permanent 
covenanted one flesh relationship. So his definition of marriage is interesting, isn't it? God's act of joining a man and a woman in a permanent covenanted one flesh relationship. And in the same book, he also says, I believe scripture teaches that marriage was designed by God to be permanent unto death and that divorce and remarriage constitute the sin of adultery. John Piper is also a proponent of the permanence view of marriage. His view is that the New Testament prohibits all remarriage except in the case where a spouse has died. Uh, that is from an article Piper wrote. It's a position paper entitled Divorce and Remarriage. As I have said, I wish that I had never preached that sermon. Over the past eight years, I have come to see that my knowledge of the subject was very limited and my study was rushed. Uh, it, if my memory is correct, the one thing that I did do in that sermon that brings me some comfort was to acknowledge that I was not sure of myself and could be wrong. Many of you were there to hear that sermon uh, eight years ago, and I do remember being uh, admittedly uncertain in my preaching. I preached being open and honest about my uncertainty, and, and, and actually I do not believe that a pastor should ever preach with uncertainty. Uh, if he is uncertain, then it would be better for him to keep his mouth shut but given that I failed to keep my mouth shut, I'm at least glad that I was honest about my uncertainty. Do you follow me? Um, Emmaus was established in June of 2011. And as I started off in full-time pastoral ministry, I found that this topic of divorce and remarriage, it kept popping up. Uh, I, one situation after another would arise, which had this issue of divorce and remarriage either at the center of it or at least in the background. You, you see, it just was a perennial issue, something... Uh, couples were always struggling with and, and wondering ab about. And uh, you do need to know this, brothers and sisters, I do not like this subject at all. I don't enjoy studying it. I don't enjoy all of the heartache that accompanies this subject. But the truth is that I couldn't get away from it. Uh, actually, those who know me best could tell you uh, that over the years, and especially in the early years of Emmaus, I have often had a book on the subject of divorce and remarriage out on my desk. I, Sometimes I have uh, thought to, to myself, um, what do my children think, you know? Uh, uh, <laughs> they see dad constantly reading books on the subject of divorce and remarriage, you know? What, what is this strange uh, interest that he has in the subject? Uh, uh, but the truth of the matter is that I was constantly being driven back to this topic by the situations that I was encountering as, as a pastor. It, it's not a pleasant topic, but it is a very important one to have settled uh, thankfully, I began to have strong doubts about the permanence view of marriage early on in Emmaus's history. I, I can say that though I held to it early on, I, I never was, was strong in it, and therefore when I counseled, I would often counsel with that kind of uncertainty that I described as, as being present in my preaching all those years ago. Uh, so I had strong doubts early in, in Emmaus's history, but, I, but it did take some time for me to fully shed that view and to develop firm convictions of my own concerning this difficult subject. I've been settled in my view for a couple of years now. I've had discussions with some of you about my view on the subject, uh, personal uh, discussions. Uh, the elders of Emmaus have also considered the issue and are of the same mind. And I think now the time has come for me to publicly repent of the erroneous views that I presented back in 2010 and to present teaching on this subject that is faithful to Scripture uh, and so I do need to say this, brothers and sisters, please forgive me for my careless handling of the scriptures back in 2010 on this subject of divorce and remarriage. I know that it has caused some unnecessary angst for some of you, and I do seek your forgiveness. The teaching that I present today 
and on the next Lord's Day. Is the result of years of thought and study on this subject. I'm happy to say that I no longer feel uncertain about the teaching of Scripture here. But that does not mean that I no longer find the issue of divorce and remarriage very challenging. Understanding what the Scriptures say on this subject is one thing, but applying the truth of Scripture to the often complicated circumstances, circumstances that arise within the lives of God's people is another thing altogether. This subject is a difficult one for pastors, and I think it always will be. Therefore, we should proceed with great caution and with humility. Today's sermon is on the subject of divorce, and the sermon next Sunday will be on the subject of remarriage. And these two sermons really do need to be considered together. I should also say that the elders have read uh, Jim Neuheiser's book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. They've read other things, too. I've read many other things. Uh, But we agree with his handling of this very difficult subject Um, I'm only going to be able to say so much in these next two sermons. And if you have questions about divorce and remarriage that are not addressed in these two sermons, I would urge you to schedule a meeting with me and or to grab a copy of Neuheiser's book. Uh, He does address a number of difficult questions, and I think he does so in a clear and concise manner. There are a couple of other very helpful books, one by John Murray and one by Jay Adams, too, that I think are good and helpful, but they they tend to be a little bit more difficult uh, to read. They're technical and, and more academic So the question is, what does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about divorce? And first of all, it must be stated that God's design for marriage is that it lasts for life. There is a sense, therefore, in which we might say that God's will for us is that we never divorce. There is a sense in which we might say that God's will for us is that we never divorce. And, and this point has already been established in the sermon series, but it needs to be restated here. Remember that we have defined marriage this way, as a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. And understanding this basic principle that God's design for marriage is that it lasts for life will help us to understand much of what the scriptures have to say on this subject of divorce and remarriage. Now, please hear me. As a general rule, marriage is to last for life. As a general rule, it is till death do us part. This does not mean that there are not exceptions to this general rule, which we will look at momentarily. But the general rule must be established before the exceptions can be stated and properly understood. And so the scriptures, time and time again, establish the general rule that marriages are to last for life. There are many passages of scripture that have this emphasis. Marriage is to last for life. Uh, Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 19, which we have just read. When answering the question of the Pharisees, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What answer did he give? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And Jesus' answer to their question was, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the ideal. This is the general rule that marriage lasts for life. Take, for example, also that very famous text in Malachi chapter 2.16 where we read this most blunt statement, the Lord God of Israel says that He hates divorce. That He hates divorce. Is it true that God hates divorce? 
Well, yes, it is true. Uh, the scriptures clearly say that he does, but, but we have to pay very careful attention to the context lest we m- misunderstand what is being said here in this passage. In Malachi 2.13, here is the context to that statement in 2.16, God hates divorce. Malachi 2.13, we read, and this is the second thing you do, so the prophet is bringing accusations against uh, God's people. This is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. You, you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And, and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. That you do not deal treacherously. Why does God hate divorce? Because it is a violation of his design for marriage. Marriage being a lifelong covenant of companionship. Whenever there is divorce, someone has violated the marriage covenant. Either by the sin of committing adultery or by divorcing without just cause. And this is the thing that God hates. This is the thing that Malachi the prophet was addressing. Men were putting away their wives for no good reason at all. They were dealing treacherously with their wives. And as a result, the altar of the Lord was being covered with tears, tears of the wives and children, presumably. This is what God hates. He hates the sin that brings divorce about. He hates divorce when it is unjust. He hates the results of the divorce, all of the destruction that it brings. Uh, This is the thing that He hates. And so there are many passages like this in the Holy Scriptures which seem to indicate that marriage is simply to last for life. But As we will see in just a moment, there are exceptions. This is the second thing that we have to recognize. Under some circumstances, divorce is permitted, according to the Holy Scriptures. Under some circumstances, divorce is permitted. This point should be considered in two parts. One, divorce as it was permitted for those under the Old Covenant. And two, Divorce as it is permitted for those who are under the new covenant. I think this is why the teaching of Scripture on this point can be so difficult for Christians to understand. We, we fail to, to, to notice the difference between Old Covenant and New and the transition from the one to the other. I know that I cannot blame everything on dispensationalism, uh, but I do really think that being raised in a dispensational context, it makes understanding this subject even more difficult for us. First of all, let us consider that divorce was permitted under the Old Covenant. In other words, the people of Israel were permitted to divorce. The law of God that was given to them through Moses permitted divorce and also regulated it. It would be good for you at this time to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, which is uh, the main Old Testament text that deals with this subject of divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Pay careful attention to God's word here. Here is what the law of Moses says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if 
Then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of this, his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. A few things need to be noticed about this passage. One, simply notice that divorce was by no means commanded or encouraged by Moses. Uh, Nowhere is divorce commanded or encouraged by Moses in this passage. Two, divorce and remarriage was clearly permitted in Moses' day under the Old Covenant. It was clearly permitted. It was tolerated. And three, divorce and remarriage was regulated under the Mosaic economy. In fact, that is what this Deuteronomy passage is most about, uh, the regulation of the existing practice of divorce. Uh, That is what this passage is really all about. Uh, What does the passage teach? Well, if a man was going to divorce his wife or a wife or husband, a certificate of divorce would need to be given. In other words, a man would not be allowed to simply divorce his wife, send her away with no evidence at all that the marriage relationship had in fact been dissolved. That would be a very unjust. It would put that wife in a very difficult position. No evidence at all for the fact that she had been put away by her husband. And so a certificate would be given. And what would be the purpose of that certificate except to show that the marriage had in fact been dissolved and that the man or woman who was put away was no longer obligated to fulfill marital duties and that the divorced person was free to remarry. That, in fact, was the case in Old Covenant Israel. And what is expressly forbidden in this Deuteronomy 24 passage? Uh, Notice that the law of Moses did not forbid divorce or even remarriage after divorce, but what is forbidden here is a woman or a man returning to her first husband or wife after the divorce once she had married another. That is the thing that is being forbidden here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, Under Moses, a a divorce and a new marriage, and then a returning back to the first spouse if the second marriage ended in either divorce or death of the second spouse, was the thing that is forbidden in this passage, clearly. So what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is the regulation of the practice of divorce under the Old Covenant. It is being regulated. Uh, And we know that in the days of Jesus, and also leading up to the days of Jesus, there were questions about valid grounds for divorce. Uh, There were some who held the position that a man was free to divorce his wife for just about any reason. And there were others who believed that valid reasons for divorce were much more limited in number. And it was this debate that existed amongst the Jews uh, concerning valid grounds for divorce that gave the Pharisees of Matthew 19 the opportunity to put Jesus to the test. They came to him and and they wanted to to trip him up. I'm a little bit comforted to know that even the religious leaders in Jesus' day had a hard time understanding this subject. It was such a difficult subject. They thought, here is our opportunity to, to cause this man, Jesus, to stumble. And so they brought this very difficult subject to him. And they put him to the test, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's this debate about what are the proper grounds for divorce uh, that gave them the opportunity to ask this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Um, 
They had debated over this point for decades and, and hundreds of years even. And they wondered, how are we to understand Deuteronomy 24 in the words, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if, they, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, etc., etc. It's this Deuteronomy 24 passage that is in their minds as they bring this question to Jesus. Uh, what does that include? Can a man divorce his wife because she is a bad cook? For example, it sounds silly, but there were some who actually held that, that position, that the some indecency in her meant if the wife seemed unfavorable to the husband for any reason at all, even a reason as petty as that, she, he, he was free to divorce her. Um, there were others who, who said no, the, the, the offense would need to be more severe than that. What are the valid grounds for divorce according to the law? Uh, that was the question that they, the Jews, debated over, and that was the question that they put to Jesus, Jesus, what is your understanding of the law of Moses on this point? And they hope to trip him up and entangle him in this messy debate. Now, Jesus' answer surprised the Pharisees, I'm sure. First of all, notice that he refused to approach Deuteronomy chapter 24 as if it answered their questions regarding divorce, but went instead to Genesis 2, 24-25. What passage did the Pharisees have in mind? Deuteronomy 24. So what does it mean he finds find some indecency in her, Jesus? What does that include? But he uh, jumped right over Deuteronomy 24 and went to Genesis 2, to a text that is much earlier and much more foundational. And he replied to the Pharisees saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. How does he answer them? He doesn't answer them from the text of Deuteronomy 24, but he just states again this ideal for the marriage relationship and this general rule that God's will for the marriage relationship is that it lasts for life. Jesus, when is it appropriate for a man to divorce his wife, the Pharisees asked, and what did Jesus say? God's ideal is that they remain together forever. And then the Pharisees pressed him further, and they said, why then... Did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Again, you can hear the Deuteronomy chapter 24 passage in the background. Uh, Clearly, these men had that text in view, and their question is reasonable, isn't it? So you are saying that marriage is to last for life. We understand that, Jesus, from Genesis 2. But how are we to understand the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 24? Why is it that Moses... uh, allows divorce. Why does he not forbid it outright? How are we to understand the fact that it was commanded in Deuteronomy 24 for a certificate to be given? Why does he permit divorce? And listen to Jesus' answer. It's very clear. He says in verse 8 of Matthew 19, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. This is a very important verse in helping us to understand divorce as it was under the old Mosaic covenant. Jesus' interpretation of the law was that marriage was to last for life, that divorce was permitted or tolerated under Moses due to the hardness of people's hearts, and that it was regulated by Moses. 
In other words, the Pharisees were laboring to understand the grounds for divorce from Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus essentially said, you will not find them there. Deuteronomy 24 has to do with the regulation of the practice of divorce, which was tolerated under Moses due to the hardness of the people's hearts. But God's ideal was and is that marriage lasts for life. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate should be remembered, uh, brothers and sisters, that Old Covenant Israel was a mixed people. Uh, there were many, indeed very many, within Israel who did not know the Lord. They were of Israel externally, but they were not Israel inwardly. They were circumcised according to the flesh, but not circumcised of the heart. The law of Moses, which was used to govern this mixed multitude, included laws which regulated the practice of divorce, but did not forbid it altogether. And this was due to the hardness of the people's hearts. Divorce was tolerated under the Old Covenant, but even then, the ideal for the marriage relationship was that it be permanent. I think one last thing needs to be said before we move on to consider divorce under the New Covenant. Uh, we should not forget that under the Old Covenant, prior to the time of Christ, uh, under the Old Covenant, in, in the law that was given to Israel as God's chosen people, under the Old Covenant, the penalty for the sin of adultery was death. The adulterer and the adulteress were to be put to death under Moses. Listen to Leviticus 20, verse 10. It simply says, If a man commits adultery, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The sin of adultery is such a violation of God's moral law and such a violation of the marriage covenant that under Moses, the adulterer and the adulteress were to be put to death. I was tempted here to go off on a tangent concerning the law of Moses and how we are to understand it now that we are under the new covenant in Christ, but that's going to have to wait for another time. For now, let this simple fact stand. Under Moses, the sin of adultery was to be punished by death. Under the new covenant, two things happen that have a direct impact on this subject of divorce and remarriage. Two things happen that have a direct impact on this subject of divorce and remarriage now that the new covenant has come. First of all, with the transition from the old covenant to the new we find that the civil laws that governed Israel no longer govern God's people. Uh, to put it differently, under the Old Covenant, church and state were united as one. But under the New Covenant, church and state are distinct. Uh, no longer does God have a particular nation that is His own in the world. But he is calling His elect from all the peoples of the earth. His kingdom is expanding to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. This is not accomplished through military conquest, but by the Word and the Spirit. The expansion of Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with national borders, but with souls rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And under the new covenant, God's people, that is to say the church, do not wield the sword. Do you understand this, right? Who wields the sword? Who has the power to enforce civil laws and, and, and to execute judgments in regard to the violation of civil laws? Who has that power under the new covenant? Is it the state? Yes, it is the state. It is not the church. Under old covenant Israel, those two entities were joined as one. In the new covenant, they are distinct, you see. 
It is not the church's job to enforce civil law. It is not the church's job to try criminals and to punish them. The state has the responsibility to do so, but not the church. Under the new covenant, God's kingdom is not of this world. The weapons of his kingdom are not sword and spear, but word and spirit. You say, well, how does all of this discussion about uh, Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Israel, uh, law under the Old Covenant, law under the New, how does it even apply to the issue of divorce and remarriage? Well, it is very important to recognize that the sin of adultery, which under the Old Covenant was punishable by death, is no longer punishable by death under the New, under the New Covenant. At least it is not to be enforced by the New Covenant people of God. Let me put the matter this way. If under the Old Covenant the subject of divorce and remarriage was being discussed, and the question of the sin of adultery being a valid grounds for divorce and remarriage uh, arose, what would the answer be? If the people of God under the Old Covenant were to say, but what about the sin of adultery? Is that a valid grounds for divorce and remarriage? What would the answer have been? It's, it's irrelevant. Because the penalty for the sin of adultery is, is death. And then surely the innocent spouse can remarry. Uh, the marriage relationship having been dissolved once the penalty for that sin was executed. You see, it would have been kind of a non-issue, the idea that adultery was a sin, uh, uh, a grounds for divorce under the Old Covenant. Uh, But under the New Covenant, this question does arise, doesn't it? Under the New Covenant, this question does arise, for the New Covenant people of God are not governed by the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. The Israel of God, that is to say the church, That's what the end of the book of Galatians calls the church. Under the new covenant is governed by the civil laws of the nations where God has placed them providentially. You have probably noticed that the civil laws under which we live do not have death as the penalty for adultery. You've probably noticed that. In fact, in most states there is no penalty at all for the sin of adultery. I I believe it is true that there are still 20 states in our union in which adultery is still a crime but it is very rare for there to be any prosecutions at all uh, in, in, this, in this area. So under the New Covenant, this question must be addressed. Is the sin of adultery a valid grounds for divorce for the Christian? And what is the answer? Yes, according to the New Testament. Here is the one valid ground for divorce that Jesus Uh, presents to us. Jesus says so most directly in the Matthew 19 passage that we have been considering. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What is Jesus saying? Generally speaking, marriage is to last for life. And we'll uh, delve into this more next week. Generally speaking, to divorce and to remarry is to commit adultery. To divorce without valid grounds and to remarry, that's to commit adultery. But there is an exception stated here by Jesus. He says this is true, generally speaking, except for the sin of sexual immorality, which can also refer to the sin of adultery. Jesus says so most directly here. Ordinarily, marriage is to last for life. To divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. Ordinarily speaking, the one exception given by Christ is the case of the sin of adultery or sexual immorality committed by one spouse. The sin of adultery so violates the marriage covenant that divorce, and as we will see, remarriage, is permitted. Uh, This is 
what permission is given for the issue of divorce under the new covenant. There is one other situation in which a Christian is free to divorce and, as we will see, remarry. And that is in the case of abandonment by a non-believing spouse. Uh, Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 and starting in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. This is Paul's preference. You know, if you are unmarried, if you are a widow, it's good for you to remain single, as I am, Paul says. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So he is not saying that marriage is forbidden, obviously. It is a good thing. Some are called to the single life, some are called to the married life. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then he says, to the married, I give this charge... Not I, but the Lord. What does this mean? This means that this is actually something that Christ addressed in his ministry. These are the words of Christ. We have them recorded for us in the gospel. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Do you hear the general rule again coming out? Generally speaking, there should never be divorce. And if it happens that a a Christian wife separates from her husband or a Christian husband separates from his wife, it is not right that it has happened, what should they do? They should not remarry, but they should do everything in their power to, to come back together again. That is what Paul says. But then he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord... In other words, Jesus did not address this directly, but Paul is addressing it here. That is what the words I, but not the Lord, mean. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so we're talking about something very specific, a Christian married to a non-Christian, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So in other words, marriage is for life, even in those mixed contexts where there is a believer and is an unbeliever. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They, they have a privileged place, uh, having close proximity to the covenant people of God. But if the unbelieving partner separates, do you hear it? If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, Paul says. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul says, in this circumstance where you have a believer and non-believer married, if if the non-believer wants to remain married, wonderful. Christian, do not divorce them because they are non-believers. Stay together. They are made holy in, in some respect because of that marriage bond. So too are the children in that relationship. But if the non-believer uh, insists upon separating, what is the Christian to do? Is the Christian to hold on you know, to that marriage, to try to insist that it work? Uh, ultimately, uh, Paul says, if, if, if they must go, if they insist on going, let them go. Let it be so, Paul says. Uh, you are not enslaved there. You are not bound to them. So what are the valid grounds for divorce uh, communicated in the pages of the New Testament? Well, in the case of the sin of adultery, uh, divorce is permitted I would say really it is the only grounds for divorce given in the sense of a Christian saying, I am deciding to end this marriage. But there is this other circumstance where if a non-believer departs, uh, the Christian is not obligated to to hold on to that marriage, but is is to allow it to dissolve and and is to be at peace concerning that, is to not be enslaved. And so Paul's teaching agrees with Jesus' as you would expect it to. 
But Paul is here applying the teaching of Christ to the difficult circumstances that arise within the church, and difficult circumstances do arise. What does he add? Well, ordinarily, marriage is for life. If a believing husband and wife do separate, they should not remarry but work towards reconciliation. And if a Christian is abandoned by his or her unbelieving spouse, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. I do take this to mean that the brother or sister does not sin by going through with the divorce. It probably also means that the abandoned Christian is also free to remarry, though I would urge the Christian to proceed with caution here. It is likely that the non-believer who has abandoned the Christian will in fact remarry, and by remarrying he or she will commit adultery, leaving the abandoned spouse free to remarry with no doubt. Do you hear how complicated all this gets? It gets very complicated. Now consider this, brothers and sisters. A Christian pages were out of order. Back up. Uh, And here we go. Um, This is a complicated subject. And I will admit that it is difficult uh, to understand the teaching of Scripture concerning uh, divorce and remarriage. It is difficult to understand. I struggled to understand it, as I have already said. Um, But this subject is made exceedingly complicated by the difficult situations that people, and even Christians, get themselves into because of their sin. Uh, In this sermon, I have only presented the basic teaching of Scripture concerning divorce. I understand I've left many questions unanswered. You can probably think of dozens of hypothetical questions or situations and ask, uh, what if? Uh, That's probably true. Even just sitting here as you're digesting all that I've just said, you you, you could probably think, but what what about this situation or what about that situation? And, And I would urge you to, if those questions are troubling to you, bring those questions to me so that we can work through them together. But I do want to close by making a few points of application. Making a few points of application is important here. Uh, First of all, it must be said that although divorce without biblical grounds is a sin, it is not an unforgivable sin. Would you agree with that, brothers and sisters? Uh, It is true. Divorce without biblical grounds is a sin. And it is, in fact, a sin that has lots of consequences associated with it. Um, there's repercussions to it that are sometimes very severe. Uh, It is a sin, but it is not an unforgivable sin. We must remember that. And to the one who has sinfully divorced in the past, I would say acknowledge your sin. Turn from it. Do everything in your power to undo the damage that has been done, which might in fact involve reconciling with your previous spouse, provided that neither of you have remarried. That actually might be something you need to do. If you have divorced someone without biblical grounds, it might mean that you need to do everything in your power to reconcile with your spouse if neither of you have remarried. And ultimately, friend, you are to look to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ is able to cleanse you. He's able to restore you. He's able to restore the ruin that you have found yourself in because of this decision. We're to run to Christ in every circumstance. This is not an unforgivable sin. And secondly, and this point is going to sound very strange to you at first, so I will warn you. I think it must be recognized that divorce is, under some circumstances and in a certain sense, good. Does that sound strange to you? It should. Um, But hear what I am saying here. It is true that God hates divorce. It is also true that divorce is always the result of some sin. 
And it is true that divorce will always be accompanied by a great deal of sorrow. We would all agree with that. But with that said, there is a sense in which it is good. And it is good in that it protects the innocent spouse from being joined for life to a spouse that is unfaithful. Do you hear me here? Uh, Here is the way that J. Adams put it in his book on divorce and remarriage. He, He says, even though all divorces are the result of sin, not all divorces are sinful. What is he getting at here? I mean, clearly, some sin has brought about this divorce in every situation. And there's always going to be heartache and grief associated with it. But, but it is not right to say that a person has sinned because they have filed for divorce. It may be that they have valid grounds to do so. And in that sense, it is good because it is freeing that person from being joined for life to an unfaithful person. To put it more directly, if you have divorced with biblical grounds due to the sin of adultery or abandonment, you need not feel the least bit of guilt about that. You will likely feel grief and sorrow over the divorce, but you need not feel guilt. Thirdly, it should be recognized that although divorce is permitted in the case of adultery, it is not required. Although although divorce is permitted in the case of adultery, notice that it is not required. A husband or wife who has been sinned against in this way may choose to remain in the marriage. Of course, uh, this would require repentance from the adulterer or the adulteress. This would require forgiveness from the one sinned against. And and this would require a great deal of effort as the husband and wife would need to work to restore uh, the marriage relationship and to rebuild trust. And though this road may be difficult, it needs to be said it is not impossible especially with Christ at work in the midst of it. I want you to consider this. A Christian must forgive those who have sinned against them from the heart, even if there is no repentance. Do you agree with that statement? So imagine being sinned against, uh, your spouse being unfaithful. Are, Are you, as a Christian, obligated to forgive that one from the heart? Yes, you are. Even if there is no repentance from the heart, you must choose to forgive that person. And if there is repentance... That forgiveness that is present within the heart must actually be transacted. Forgiveness must be extended. It must be given to the person. If they say, I am so sorry for what I have done, please forgive me. You must be willing to say, having your heart prepared to do so, I forgive you. I no longer hold it against you. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's what Christ calls us to do, isn't it? We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. But notice this also, extending forgiveness does not mean that everything goes back to how it used to be. You do understand that, don't you, brothers and sisters? Extending forgiveness does not mean that everything goes back to how it used to be. In other words, a Christian is not obligated to take his or her adulterous spouse back just because they say the words, I'm sorry, please forgive me. They're not obligated to to stay in the marriage. Adultery is, in fact, a valid grounds for divorce, but... If the repentance is true, the Christian spouse does have an opportunity to extend grace to the one who has sinned and to keep the marriage intact. There is that possibility, there is that opportunity there for this kind of grace to be extended, for the one who has been sinned against to say, I forgive you, and in fact I am willing to do the hard work necessary to bring everything back to what it used to be, to keep the marriage intact. In my opinion, this would be a very beautiful reflection of the love of Christ for His church. Wouldn't you agree? We have 
been so terribly unfaithful to our God, and yet He takes us back time and time again in Christ Jesus. And in the case where there is adultery, there is this opportunity, if there is repentance from the adulterer or adulteress, to, to take them back, to keep the marriage together, and, and in such a beautiful way, show forth the tremendous love that is found in Christ Jesus, to extend that kind of grace. I think I need to say one more thing about keeping a marriage intact after the sin of adultery. If a husband or wife chooses that route to keep the marriage together, to continue on with the marriage despite the sin of unfaithfulness, then the threat of divorce needs to be set aside after that decision has been made. Do you you understand what I am getting at here? Uh, Do you have grounds for divorce if your spouse has been unfaithful? Do you? Yes, you do. Must you divorce? No, you may remain in the marriage if your spouse is repentant. But if you choose to stay in the marriage, the sin of adultery needs to be forgiven and not held against your spouse any longer. In other words, at some point, and I'm not sure how long this should take, the one who has been sinned against needs to say, I forgive you, I am deciding to stay, I no longer have grounds for divorce till death do us part. I think you could understand why this needs to happen. It's difficult, I'll admit it, but it needs to happen. It cannot be that with every common marital problem that arises a year after the unfaithfulness, or five years, or ten years, or twenty, it cannot be that with every common marital problem that arises, uh, the spouse who was sinned against all those years ago again says, I'm done. Why are you done? Because you committed adultery on me 30 years ago. No. At some point, you you have to either decide to stay or to go. And if you decide to stay, then you need to stay. And say once again, till death do us part. Fourthly, if you are a Christian and a member of a church that takes the responsibility of exercising biblical church discipline seriously, every Christian should be, the church must be involved in the process of determining whether divorce is permissible. How are divorces handled in our culture, uh, brothers and sisters? Uh, Weddings are a public affair, aren't they? But oftentimes divorce is a very private affair. It's something that you do. You you go and you you file, and and it could be that hardly anyone knows about it. uh, Hardly anyone has any input into it. What I'm saying is that if you're a Christian, you should be a part of a church that takes discipline seriously. And the church needs to be involved in this process just as... The marriage was instituted publicly and before witnesses, so too the decision to divorce should also involve witnesses. If a Christian man or woman has committed the sin of adultery, the church must be involved, wouldn't you agree? If a Christian man or woman abandons his or her spouse, the church must be involved. And if a Christian is considering going through a divorce, the church must be involved to either oppose or support the decision. I hope it is obvious to you why this must be the case. In fact, um, you, you do remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7? He's talking about the issue of abandonment, right? Uh, What is the situation? If a believer is married to a non-believer, and the non-believer decides to leave, let it be so. But what about a situation where a Christian is married to another professing Christian, and the professing Christian decides to leave? What then? It doesn't really fit with Paul's... Uh, instructions here. What, what needs to happen? The church must be involved. 
to investigate the matter and to confront the one who has professed faith in Christ. And it may be that the one who has professed faith in Christ and decides to unjustly abandon his or her spouse, church discipline needs to take place. And if there is no repentance, excommunication needs to take place, which is the declaration that though you claim to be a Christian, your fruit shows clearly that you are not. Now all of a sudden, what do you have? You actually have a situation that fits with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. A Christian married to a non-Christian. And if the non-Christian will, insists on leaving, let it be so. You are not enslaved, but are free. You're called to peace. Fifthly, and very briefly, uh, brothers and sisters, let us do everything in our power to protect our marriages. Let us do everything in our power to protect our marriages so that this issue, uh, Lord willing, never arises amongst us. Uh, may we do everything in our power to, to, to uh, have healthy marriages, uh, marriages where this issue of divorce isn't even being considered. Uh, the previous sermons preached should help with that, but let us do everything in our power to protect our marriages. Uh, more will be said next week on the issue of remarriage. I think ho- hopefully things will become even more clear after that sermon is preached. But for now, let's uh, bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. Uh, Though some things in it are difficult to understand, we we do uh, confess to you that uh, it is a light to our path. Uh, Help us to walk according to it, Lord. Even when it comes to unpleasant subjects such as this, help us to look carefully at your word, to know what it says. Uh, Father, help us to live in obedience to it. Our culture, Lord, is so different. Uh, It it has gone so astray from the clear teaching of, of Holy Scripture Uh, Lord, and and we are called uh, to follow your word. So give us the courage to do that, to be a peculiar people, a different people, a holy people, Lord, when compared to the world around us. Uh, Lord, give us the courage uh, within our marriages to have marriages that are distinctly Christian. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to have marriages that give honor to you and that are conducted according to your word so that when the world looks in upon them, they do notice something different. May the world truly see the love and grace of Christ put on display by our marriage relationships. Father, uh, we pray that you would bless our marriages. We pray that they would be for life, that we would not merely survive but thrive in them, Lord. And God forbid, if the issue of divorce ever does arise, help us uh, to honor and obey your word in these things. Uh, Father, give us the courage to do so so that we might be blessed and so that you might be honored. It's in the name of Christ we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.